Amen. If you would, take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Don't you love that last verse in the hymn, I change, He changes not. That is good news. Luke chapter 13 is where we are this morning. We're going to finish the chapter with verses 31 to 35. Next Sunday, Trey is going to be preaching to us on the holiness of God. So this will end Luke chapter 13, and then we'll have a week's break where we're going to be in our series on doctrinal truths about the character and work of God, and then we'll come back to Luke 14 here in a couple of weeks. Today we finish Luke 13, verses 31 to 35. Follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And He said to them, Go and tell that fox... Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help today. We pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear what it is that Jesus Christ reveals in the Scriptures about Himself, about Your Gospel, and about us in relationship to that Gospel. Father, we pray today that our hearts would be soft and ready to respond. We pray that there would be no stubborn unbelief present among us, Father. That those who know You by grace today would find their faith strengthened. That those who do not know You, Father, would by Your grace receive the new birth and come to trust in Jesus Christ. And Your will would be done, Father, among us even as Your will is done in heaven. Lord, please keep me from error. Please give us discernment, all of us, God. As we heard from Second Peter, it is a time of scoffing in this world. We pray for discernment, Father, to hold fast to the truth. And we pray, most of all, God, that we would remember that You are holding fast to us through Your Word and by Your grace. And we pray in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Friends, our passage this morning is a turning point in Luke's Gospel. That might sound strange for me to say, considering it's only a handful of verses here at the end of chapter 13. You might read this text and think that it's little more than a transition that takes us from one event to the next. But that would miss the significance of of this short passage. It is a turning point. Let me explain what I mean. Over and over in the last few chapters, Jesus has confronted Israel's hard-heartedness. Remember the verdict that Jesus pronounced in verse 6 of chapter 13. Israel is a barren fig tree. They're bearing no fruit. And then consider the warning that we saw last week. The way forward is a narrow door. The time for a response is now. But the people have not responded. The narrow door is closing quickly. From the Jewish religious leaders on down to the everyday Israelite, 
the response to Jesus has been persistently negative, ranging from ambivalence all the way to hostility. And now Luke tells us that hostility is expanding as King Herod gets in on the action with a plan to put Jesus to death. If Jesus continues to Jerusalem, the road only gets more dangerous from here. And yet Jesus goes ahead anyway. He goes ahead anyway. That's the turning point that I'm talking about. It's very clear that Jerusalem will be a place of suffering for Jesus. It's very clear that Israel's Messiah will be rejected in Israel's capital. And still, Jesus goes ahead anyway. In fact, when Jesus hears of Herod's threat, He does two rather remarkable things. One, He affirms His rock-solid commitment to carry out the will of God. And two, He laments Israel's stubborn unbelief. Jesus mourns. Those two responses taken together are remarkable. In one short moment, in one brief period of time, Jesus is both tenacious and tender-hearted. He is not afraid of Herod. And He is not unmoved by the hard-heartedness of Israel. Again, this is the significance of the text, friends. The passage is brief, but it gives us a glimpse of how the Gospel will triumph even over unbelief. As we witness Jesus' tenacity and His tenderheartedness, we see the reason why the plan of God is not deterred by human wickedness. We see the reason why the Gospel cannot be stopped. And the reason rests solely on the determined faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He knows it's going to be dangerous and He goes ahead anyway. And therein lies the connection for us as the church. There's a lot in this passage that applies to the historical nation of Israel and we're going to seek to understand that this morning. But that does not mean that this passage is merely historical or has no connection to us. In fact, the connection from this passage to us is perhaps even more important than we realize. By observing the determined faithfulness of Jesus, we ought to be reminded that the mission of the church does not rest primarily on our faithfulness, but on Christ's. His faithfulness, even unto death, is our hope. And from that death-defying hope, His faithfulness becomes our calling, even as we seek to entrust ourselves to the Father, particularly when the cost is high. So with that overview in mind, let's consider the details of this turning point passage. I've already sketched a bit of the outline for you. It's clear enough, I hope. I want us to observe three simple truths in connection with Christ. Number one is the steadfastness of Christ. Number two is the compassion of Christ. And number three is the triumph of the Gospel. Steadfast, compassionate, and triumph. We begin in verses 31 to 33 with the steadfastness of Christ. The passage actually begins with a surprise. Verse 31, the Pharisees of all people warned Jesus of danger. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. 
Now, why would the Pharisees go out of their way to warn Jesus? Their opposition to Jesus has been building for some time, and it's even started to spill out into public. So why would they look out for Him now? Well, the best answer that we can give is that Luke doesn't tell us why. Perhaps this is the old adage of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It seems unlikely that the Pharisees legitimately care about Jesus' well-being. But again, Luke doesn't tell us their, their specific motivation. But in the end, the motivation doesn't affect our understanding of the passage. What's clear is that Jesus knows His life is in danger. If He keeps going on this road, He knows He faces a mortal threat. The warning, however, is not the most important thing in the passage. Jesus' response is. Despite the clear knowledge of the danger, Jesus doesn't back down. He presses on. Notice the Lord's response, verse 32. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. There are a couple of points we ought to note from Jesus' response. The first is His clarity. Jesus does not mince words. Herod is not the ultimate authority in Israel. Herod is not ultimately the king. Jesus is. And Jesus backs that claim up by describing His ministry. Notice what Jesus tells them to tell Herod. Tell him about casting out unclean spirits and healing the sick. Why does He mention those things? Why pick out those things? It's not to impress Herod. It's to warn him. It's to warn Herod. Those miracles, casting out unclean spirits and healing the sick, those miracles are proof that the kingdom of God is arriving in Jesus Christ. You see, by describing his ministry, Jesus essentially says to Herod, you're not in charge. You're not the king. You don't have ultimate power. I do, Jesus says. If Herod thinks he can make Jesus turn tail and run, then Herod is sorely mistaken. Herod has an earthly throne. Jesus rules over the universe. Herod has political power. Jesus comes with the very kingdom of God. Jesus is very clear about who He is. The second point we ought to note is Jesus' commitment. Look again at the last phrase in verse 32. And the third day, Jesus says, I finish my course. What does Jesus mean by the third day? Is He just three days away from Jerusalem? Probably not. Rather, the point is that the events of Jesus' ministry are unfolding in their proper order with a sense of purpose. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He knows what's coming and He cannot be stopped. One, then two, then three, Jesus says, I'm committed to my mission and you can't stop what I'm doing. In fact, the word finished in verse 32 is key. The idea is to accomplish something and to do so with determination. Finished. The word shows up more frequently in John's Gospel than it does in Luke's Gospel. Like when Jesus tells the disciples in John 4 that His food is to accomplish the Father's work. Or in John 17 when Jesus prays to the Father that He has accomplished the work given Him to do. Or in John 19 when Jesus on the cross knows that all is now finished. 
Accomplished. Finished. That's the sense in verse 32. It's determination. It's commitment. Despite the danger, despite the cost, despite the suffering, Jesus will finish His course. He's very clear about who He is and He is committed to what He must do. All of this comes together, friends, in verse 33. Here we see the reason why Jesus remains steadfast in the face of Herod's threat. Notice what Luke says, verse 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. This is a profound statement from Jesus. What we see here is the Son's complete submission to the will of His Father. And we see this in that little word, must. Jesus must continue on His way. Why must Jesus continue? Because it's God's will that He do so. In other words, what drives Jesus to Jerusalem is the eternal plan of God. The Father's will is for the Son to bear the cross. That's what Jesus means when He says, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. You know the Old Testament. Jerusalem was often the epicenter of opposition to the Word of God. And so it will be for Jesus. The Father's will requires that Jesus reach Jerusalem where He will suffer and die for the salvation of His church. In other words, divine sovereignty is at work in Jesus' life. And the outworking of that sovereignty includes Jesus' faithfulness unto death. You see, that's what Herod doesn't understand. Herod thinks he is sovereign, which is why he threatens Jesus. But in reality, God is sovereign, and therefore there is nothing Herod can do to Jesus to derail the plan of God. Jesus is faithful because He submits to the Father and the Father's will must be done. Herod can't stop it. This is why Jesus remains steadfast in the face of suffering. With complete humility, the Son of God submits Himself to the Father's will. And that submission arms Jesus with confidence, with courage even, to remain faithful to His work. Now at this point, we might conclude that the takeaway for us is that we ought to follow Jesus' example. Just as Jesus entrusted Himself to the Father and therefore was faithful, so also we must entrust ourselves to God in order to live faithfully. We might conclude that is the application for us. And that is not an improper takeaway. It's not wrong. Jesus is modeling for us the way to be faithful. And it does require submission to the goodness and sovereignty of God the Father. So in no way am I trying to minimize that connection. But for this morning, friends, I'd like us to consider another connection, a different takeaway for our lives. And this takeaway is less something we ought to do and more something we ought to marvel at. What we have in these few verses is the foundation 
for our confidence as the people of God. What we see in Jesus' steadfastness is the bedrock of our hope that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And that bedrock, brothers and sisters, is the steadfast faithfulness of God the Son. We stand secure in salvation because Christ stood firm in the face of the cross. We stand secure in God's love because Christ stood firm to bear God's wrath. Brothers and sisters, what I'm urging you to see is that the obedience and the faithfulness of Jesus are an essential part of salvation. We are saved because of what Jesus endured in our place, and we are saved because of what Jesus actively accomplished in our place. He submitted Himself to the Father in complete and total faithfulness for the joy that was set before Him, the joy of glorifying His Father. Jesus despised the shame of crucifixion. He embraced Calvary and He's seated now at the right hand of God. Jesus obeyed the Father. How do you and I know that we will one day reach the glory of heaven? Because Christ was faithful in our place. Because Christ stood where we would not and could not stand. Because Christ is steadfast and firm and resolute and determined and obedient to His Father. Friends, before before we jump quickly to what we ought to do as Christians... Let's marvel at what Jesus did to make us Christians. Far too often, this is actually very concerning to me, far too often we rush past the glory of the Gospel because we want to do something. We want to be practical. We want to take action. We want a neat list of spiritual steps that we can check off tomorrow and assuage our consciences that we've done our little bit. And to be sure, taking action is not wrong. Carrying out practical steps of godliness is a good thing. But that good thing can become a less than good thing if we miss the glory that upholds all of our doing. Instead of rushing on to the next thing, this passage, and indeed I would say all of the Bible, says stop, stop, linger, wait, and wonder at the Son of God. Here is the Son of God faithful for you. Here is the Son of God obedient for you. Here is the Son of God courageous and committed and tenacious for you. And without the Son's tenacious obedience, you and I are not saved. So don't rush past, friends. Don't rush past. Don't open the Bible and have the first question you ask be, what can I do? Instead, have the first question be, what has Christ done in order that I would be a Christian? Don't rush past. Worship Christ for His faithfulness. The glory of the Gospel is on display right here in Luke chapter 13. And the specific jewel that invites our wonder is the steadfastness of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the wonder doesn't stop in verse 33. It continues into verse 34. So let's linger a little more on Jesus. And this time, let's note the compassion of Christ. He's steadfast in our place. And now, 
Let's note the compassion of our Lord. The exchange with the Pharisees has clearly established that suffering lies ahead for Jesus. He knows what's coming, and what's coming is the cross. Israel's Messiah will be rejected in Israel's capital. But instead of responding with harsh criticism, Jesus responds with mourning. Instead of upbraiding the spiritually blind city, Jesus displays compassion. Notice verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Friends, what we need to recognize is there's a tragic storyline playing out in Jesus' ministry. And that storyline has to do with the nation of Israel. By speaking of Jerusalem, Jesus is speaking of the entire nation. And the storyline is tragic. From the earliest days of Israel, the nation has opposed God's Word through His prophets. That might sound alarming to you, but just think about the scope of the Old Testament. Think about how the people of Israel grumbled against Moses in the wilderness. Moses clearly spoke for God, and Moses' ministry was clearly attested with many mighty deeds, but the people grumbled against him. They opposed his leadership. Or think about the people's response to the prophet Samuel. He clearly spoke for God when he warned the nation against choosing a king like all of the other nations. And yet the people rejected Samuel's counsel. Elijah ran from one end of the country to the other because he was being chased by the king. Isaiah and Jeremiah had awful ministries in terms of what they had to endure. From Israel's earliest days, the prophets brought God's word, and from Israel's earliest days, the people rejected that word. And now Jesus says that history is coming to a head. But this time, it's not merely a prophet who's coming to Jerusalem, it's the Messiah. And still, the city will not receive Him. In fact, this is another way that Jesus' ministry brings to a climax God's dealings with Israel. All of the prophets, all of the covenant renewals, all of the centuries of calling people back to the Lord, all of that is coming to a head right here with Jesus in Jerusalem. And Jesus mourns in verse 34. He mourns. That's stunning, friends. He laments. That's stunning. If you think about it, God, through Jesus, has every right to simply write Jerusalem off. God has every right to immediately consign the rebellious nation to a future of judgment. And while that judgment is coming, that does not rule out Jesus' compassion. Notice the image Jesus uses of a hen gathering her brood under her wings. That's an image of nurture, of care, of protection. It actually stretches back into the Old Testament. It stresses back to Deuteronomy. And it was particularly expressed with some poignancy in the book of Ruth. And then on into David's Psalms. And the point is that God's heart is always to care for His people. And that's that's what Jesus is demonstrating here. 
in a display of God's character, Jesus mourns over Jerusalem's hard-heartedness. He laments. As we read in 2 Peter just a moment ago, God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to reach repentance. So despite that tragic storyline of Israel's history, what, what verse 34 is showing us is the heart of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is unthinkably patient. Of course, that raises a question, doesn't it? Or at least it should raise a question if you listened to the first point in the sermon. Jesus' lament is that He would have gathered Jerusalem to Himself, but the city was unwilling. That is, the people by and large refused to respond to the good news of the kingdom. We just talked a moment ago about God's will being unstoppable. We just talked a moment, about, we just talked a moment ago about the gospel not being thwarted. But here, in verse 34, it appears that Jesus is thwarted. He would gather the people, but they won't come. So what's the point? Well, I take it that the point is actually not to provide commentary on the will of God. To use doctrinal terms, verse 34 is not a verse about divine foreknowledge. Rather, the point of verse 34 is to warn against the danger of disregarding God's Word. There are real consequences for disregarding the Word of God. You see, that's part of the compassion. That's part of the mercy. Rather than instantly consigning the city to destruction, Jesus calls to them again. Rather than immediately casting these people aside as hard-hearted and stubborn and rebellious, Jesus again reminds them of what is true about God. That He will protect and provide for His people. That His heart is patient. That His will is not for any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. And therefore, the time to respond is now. The narrow door is closing, Jesus says. Don't delay. Verse 34 is not saying that the will of God can be thwarted. Not at all. Verse 34 is reminding us that God in Christ is unthinkably patient with sinners. Unthinkably patient. Now with the hindsight of history, we know that Jerusalem did not respond to Jesus. Israel did not respond to her Messiah. The city of Jerusalem was largely destroyed in A.D. 70, which means that God's mercy does not exclude His judgment. There are consequences for rejecting the gospel, and the nation of Israel knows that full well. Along with that, we also know with the help of other passages in the Bible that Israel, like all people, needs to be born again. There is no response to God's Word apart from the work of the Spirit to grant new life. God must take out our hearts of stone and give us new hearts that delight to believe the Gospel. So with both history and Scripture helping us, we can understand why Israel did not believe and what the consequences would be. It's real historical consequences for Israel. But at this point, friends... More than focusing on the history of Israel, we ought to recognize here the mercy and compassion of Christ. Once more, Jesus calls to the rebellious nation, 
Once more, God sends His Word to people who deserved judgment. And therefore, we ought to see how God is still doing that today. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the same compassion that Jesus showed here in Luke is being shown to you even right now. If you're not a Christian, God has made His promise of salvation plain in His Word. There is salvation in Christ for those who repent of their sins and believe the Gospel. And in that sense, that tragic storyline of Israel that we just described, that whole history is calling to you this morning. Hear God's Word and believe. Turn from your sin and trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin. God was compassionate in Christ to the city of Jerusalem and God is being compassionate to you right now, friend. If you don't know the Lord, the compassion of Christ is very clearly being played out in this moment. He's calling to you through His Word, urging you to respond to the Gospel in faith. That's the compassion of the Lord Jesus. He does not leave people in their sins. He calls to them with the truth of the Gospel. And I pray that you would hear this morning. The steadfastness of Christ, the compassion of Christ. I want to come back now at the end as we close to the will of God and Israel's refusal to believe. I want to come back to the connection of those two things. God's will and Israel's unbelief. I want to come back to that because that's where Jesus ends in verse 35. And what we see here is the triumph of the Gospel. That's the third truth that we ought to note. The triumph of the Gospel. As we said a moment ago, it would be easy to conclude, based on Israel's history, that God's will is being thwarted somehow. If even Jerusalem would not receive the Messiah, then how can we say that God's kingdom has come? That's the question that Jesus answers in verse 35. And it's a statement of judgment that reminds us of how the Gospel will triumph. Notice what Jesus says, verse 35. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see Me until you say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus references two Old Testament passages here. And he's putting them together in order to make an essential point. So we're going to do a little Bible math. It's not really math, but it's kind of like that. Because we're going to take one passage and another passage and we're going to add them together in order to get Jesus' point. So for five minutes, think along with me. Okay, Think along with me. Jesus references two Old Testament passages. The first is the declaration, Behold, your house is forsaken. That is an allusion to Jeremiah chapter 12. Not illusion, an allusion. He's alluding to it. Sorry for my southern accent. It's an allusion to Jeremiah 12. A passage that also deals with God's people rejecting God's messenger. And in Jeremiah, the prophet's message was clear. God's judgment is coming for the nation because they have refused to respond. So, by referencing Jeremiah's ministry, Jesus is connecting Himself 
with the history of Israel. He's saying there's a continuous line here and I'm the culmination of it. Since Jesus is the very Word of God made flesh, the judgment that He brings is much greater than the judgment of Jeremiah's day. Rejecting Jeremiah is heinous, but that pales in comparison to rejecting Jesus. Hence the image that Jesus uses in verse 35. If Israel is a house, then their house is forsaken. Or to use the image from earlier in chapter 13, if Israel is a fig tree, it's barren. It's time to be cut down. It's time for the house to be demolished. Judgment is coming. So that's Old Testament passage number one. Jesus alludes to Jeremiah as a way of confronting the nation with their spiritual bankruptcy. God's judgment is at hand. But that does not mean God's purpose has failed. Rather, God's purpose is coming to pass even through unbelief. Notice where Jesus says next, you will not see Me until you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the next Old Testament passage. It's a quote from Psalm 118 which is a song of thanksgiving that praises God for His steadfast love. That was our call to worship this morning on purpose. Psalm 118. In that psalm, God's people celebrate the faithfulness of God by declaring a blessing on the One who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, you probably recognize that quote from Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which will take place in just a few chapters. But... That is not the connection that Jesus intends us to make here in chapter 13. Jesus does not cite this psalm in anticipation of His triumphal entry. Rather, Jesus cites this psalm as a way of telling the nation, until you recognize Me as the One who brings God's salvation, you will experience judgment. Until you bow the knee and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, your house is forsaken. Or, to put the two passages together, until you do Psalm 118, you will experience Jeremiah 12. Until you do what the psalm says, receive me, the Messiah, you will experience what Jeremiah 12 promised, judgment. Here's the connection for us. While the psalm confronts unbelieving Israel, notice that it also very clearly exalts Jesus as the Messiah. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the one who comes to pour out God's steadfast love on those who believe. He is the Messiah. Psalm 118 is about Him. Who is the one who comes in the name of the Lord? Even this man from Galilee. Jesus is saying. And that means Israel's unbelief cannot derail the plan of God. Jeremiah 12 cannot undo Psalm 118. God's will is being done. Judgment for Israel does not change what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ. God will bring salvation to the earth. His steadfast love does endure forever. How does, it, how does God's steadfast love endure forever? Because the Christ can never die, as the hymn says that we sang. Because Jesus endures forever. God's steadfast love endures for all time through the Gospel of the ever-living and undying Christ. 
And that's what we mean, friends, when we say that the gospel will triumph. God's will for the Christ is being fulfilled, and it's being fulfilled even through unbelief. Even Israel's hard-heartedness is being used by the sovereign providence of God to bring to pass His steadfast love. So as we try to wrap this whole thing up, where does that leave us? Where does this turning point passage leave us? Steadfastness of Christ, compassion of Christ, triumph of the Gospel. Where does that leave us? Frankly, brothers and sisters, it leaves us dependent upon the Lord Jesus. And that's a good thing. It leaves us dependent upon the Lord Jesus. Our life as the people of God does not rest on our effort. Our confidence is the steadfastness of Christ. Even with the cross very clearly before Him, Jesus endured to the end. And thus, we are saved. And because Jesus endured to the end, God's purpose will not be thwarted. Even when there is unbelief and rejection, we have confidence that God's will is coming to pass. And therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. We continue to devote ourselves to the ministry of the Gospel. We continue to display the compassion of Christ. Like the Savior who bought us with His own blood, we're patient, pleading with sinners to repent while praying for God to be gracious to them. That's our calling. We don't lose heart. We remain devoted. And in the midst of that devotion, we remember that it doesn't rest on us, but on the steadfast Savior whose Gospel will triumph in the end. So we do not lose heart. So maybe we should just close with this hope and prayer and blessing. May God increase our joy in Christ. May we continue to stand out as a church in the midst of a distracted world that wants to do a lot of things before they marvel at the one thing. And may we be pleased, may God be pleased to work through us to accomplish His purpose and to build His church even through the opposition of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask for help now. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so we pray, God, that You would take Your Word and that You would bear fruit from Your Holy Spirit. Lord, even when we have given our best effort to make Your Word clear and plain, we stand in absolute dependent need of Your Spirit to work. And so I plead with You, Father, as one of the pastors in this church, I plead with You to please bear fruit in our lives from the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God for the glory of the Son of God. Please bear fruit, Father. Help us to not lose heart. There are innumerable reasons to lose heart, Father. Not least of which is the scoffing, unbelieving opposition of the world. Help us to not lose heart and to see in the steadfastness of our Lord a great reason for confidence that Your Gospel will not fail. Oh Lord, help us to stand out in the midst of a world that is taken up with distraction and love of self. Help us to stand out as people who are willing to stop and linger and wonder at the Son of God crucified and, resurrection for the, and, and resurrected for the salvation of sinners. Help us, Father, to be a church that not just professes to be God-centered and Christ-centered, but is actually those things. 
Help us to be a people who don't simply go through the motions of professing our need for the Gospel, but people who know, Lord, deep in their souls that apart from the Gospel, we have nothing. Oh God, help us. We plead for You to help us today and to work among us through Your Word applied by Your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.